Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Welcome to another edition of Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I'm in studio here with Cody Beeson. Good morning. Hey, good morning. So today we're going to talk about a lot of common myths that have been circulating. They've been, um, they've gone through and taken root a little bit in the past and then fizzled out and then resurged. And right now, one that's resurging is um, something that was called the population bomb. And so obviously it's, it's what it sounds like. It's where we get overpopulated in the earth with humans and we take up too much resources, take up too much land, too many people are crammed in too tight spaces until we start wars and there's disease and there's famine and uh, we either end up wiping out vast majority of the population or we just die off altogether and in some live miserable lives of starvation and depravity and we don't want that of course but what is the capacity of the earth to sustain both human life and, and a good balance of environmental, um, let's say, the landscapes and, and animals and, and biodiversity? And are we on the precipice of tipping that scale? And I think that goes right in turn with, you know, climate change and what's going on there. And it goes in turn with... Um, technology and how we continue to be able to live in more remote areas and get further and further away from um, rural er or urban areas and rural areas keep expanding out. So um, The Population Bomb was a very popular book that was released in the late 1960s. It was authored by Paul Ehrlich. Um, he was a German scientist and a Stanford professor. Uh, professor, he believed that uh, by approximately the 1970s, hundreds of millions, this is a quote from his book, would starve to death because the earth did not have enough resources to feed the ever-growing population. And uh, for Ehrlich, the consequences were such an exponential threat that immediate action needed to take place. For example, um, forced contraception by government entities. Like put it in the water. Put it in the water. Yeah. Or Wait. fast food. Okay, <laughs> there you go. We can't, we yeah. can't avoid it either way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that was something that governments did take seriously. We know that uh, China, for one, um, created the one-child policy. And when you look into that, the one-child policy from a 10,000-foot view is each family only gets to have one child. Um, there were exceptions. If it was a girl, you'd have another chance to have a male heir to carry on the family name. And um, so what was happening was when children were born, females were born, a lot of them were being killed. So there was a lot of infanticide that was occurring. There was also a lot of forced abortion. And it was only the people that were in the lower classes that were this was being imposed upon. Um, when you look into the history of it, the 
upper class, two-thirds of the population of China actually didn't even have this imposition on them. It was only one-third, but it, it created millions upon millions of children being killed because of this policy, because the fear of overpopulation. Now, currently, China has another problem, and that is that they have an aging population that needs a workforce to provide and sustain their economy, and the workforce isn't there. So, you know, you run into those issues. Not only is it terribly unethical to coerce a parent to kill their child, or to create a policy that um, provides strong incentives for them to kill their child. But um, you got to step back and understand what the purpose of the earth is for in general, and also understand that we are far from knowing the capacity of the earth as a resource to provide for all life, animal life, all biodiversity as far as trees and plants and, and animals alike. But um, to assume that we know how much food the earth can produce just based on our very limited knowledge is, is very naive. So I, I want to pose a question to you, Cody, um, get a little dialogue going here. What, what do you think we're here for? What, what is the whole purpose of the earth? Was it created from this big bang accidental collision um, and, then a cell developed and, and we exist now as uh, intelligent beings, or is there some divine design? I mean, I, things are too perfect to not have a divine creator, you know, like that too much has happened in such a perfect fashion for us to be here today having this conversation. Um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And if you don't see that proof, I, I can't help you. I mean, it's, it's obviously there, but that being said, I've always been under the impression that, the earth is able to sustain a certain population and there's only so much sunlight. There's only so much, you know, we can grow in certain areas, but with the help of, and maybe this is just propaganda, but with the help of, you know, GMOs, we're able to uh, grow more food in places that maybe not best suited for that type of environment. Well, I mean, we currently live in a desert. Exactly. Right. And we grow leafy greens, you know, and we lo yeah, we grow 90% of the salads or what's in the salads that is consumed by the nation during the winter months. And it's, it's a fantastic area for that because we're at the end of the Colorado River. We don't use the water. It's going to flow into the ocean, and uh, the ocean has plenty of water. So we use the fresh water. We irrigate the fields. It's got plenty of sun. It's still warm enough in the wintertime to uh, grow salad or uh, lettuce and spinach and, and all those types of vegetables that uh, we provide the nation with most of the ingredients for salads. And that is a wonderful use of those resources. Without human intervention, it would not be possible at all. Now, there's several layers of that human intervention. Number one, we had to tame the Colorado because it was either flowing at a very low rate during, um, say, the winter time when the snowback was accruing in the mountains or in the later summer months, or it was, it was flooding during the springtime when the snow was melting and so it was wiping out acres and acres of what would have been farmland. And so it was very difficult to put in any type of irrigation or plan for um, mass crops because the river was so unpredictable. So one of the first things that we needed to do was put in dams 
that would control the flow of the river. So there was a consistency there. So it would stay within reasonable um, parameters of, of the banks of the river. And then we could use that water without being wiped out each year. Um, the other thing is the electricity that it generated helped produce um, the power that was necessary to power homes for air conditioning. There's, if You need people here to um, start to cultivate the land, and not a lot of people want to live here if it's going to be 120 degrees. So you need that power to have air conditioning, and that is climate control. I mean, it's yeah. literally like on my wall is my climate control device for my house. And I can go outside and I can bear the heat for a couple hours a day or I can go into my car that's got air conditioning as long as I've got some power to offset what the natural climate is so I can allow the, the desert, which would otherwise be vacant of a majority of life, to help thrive with life. And not only human life, but the animals and the environment in general. We've seen that the the creation of Lake Powell and Lake Mead and um, Mojave Lake and Lake Havasu, those are miles and miles of wetlands that create habitat for hundred thousands of species and and we can all thrive and, and have a better life because of that technology and that human intervention. So I, I went off a bit of, from the question of originally asked, which is, why are we here? Like, what is the, what's the purpose of the earth? To use the resources for our life, you know, to make life better for us and everybody else. So we've got this divine design, right? right. So I'm going to call our divine creator God, okay? Now, personally, I believe him to be Jesus, other people call him by other names. Other people think it's a she, and that's all fine. Either way, I believe there's a divine creator. And I also believe, and this is substantive, but it's my belief that we are created in his image. And the purpose of our creation is to grow and develop and to become more like our creator. And uh, so, yeah, I do believe that we have a divine mother and father. And I know that's a bit out there, but I put it out there as my religion. I don't put that out there as science that everybody must agree upon and we must implement government um, provisions and policies to impose on others. Yeah, that would be the Taliban. See, that, that would be the Taliban yeah. or even closer to home, I think that would be the climate movement, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? The Green Agenda. Because it's, it's no different than the green agenda where they say that the earth must be maintained at a certain temperature or must be maintained within certain conservation levels in order for us to be doing what we should be doing as humans. I think that is more as akin to a religion than actual science because we've seen throughout just the past hundred years a science on that has flip-flopped at least a dozen times from we're going into another ice age and we're going to face mass extinction because of that to the earth, the seas are going to be bubbling at year 2012 and, and none of that came to pass. So these are a lot of prophecies that never came true. And the whole premise of it was that human intervention is bad and therefore humans in, in a sense are bad and a cancer upon the earth. And so we need to pull back and reduce our impact on the earth. 
I feel the complete opposite. I feel that we are put here to cultivate the earth and to help beautify it, to become good stewards of it, to create gardens where there are deserts, to create Edens where there are wild forests, and coincide and, and coexist with animals and, and the land. But it, technology helps that. It doesn't actually hinder that when you use it properly. For example, Yuma uses about um, 1 million acre-feet of water. Now, I don't know, acre-feet isn't something that a lot of people use as a measurement standard on a daily basis. So let me just put that in perspective. An acre-foot is about a football field full, one foot deep, with water. That's about an acre foot, right. okay? So one million of those is how much Yuma, Yuma County, uses each year to produce its agriculture. And um, on the very first blush, we may say, well, that's a ton of water, and is that a good thing to be taking all that water and pouring it into the desert? Well, what do we get out of it? Number one, we enrich the soil. It becomes more carbon dense when you plant it with whether it be hay or leafy greens, lettuce, spinach, all the other cauliflower, all the other vegetables that are grown here. And so we're actually sequestering carbon. If you think carbon is a bad thing to be in the air, CO2. Right. I don't, I don't know if that I do, but um, if you do believe that, we're sequestering that carbon by using the water and putting it onto the land that way. We're producing a lot of more habitat for other animals to thrive. And we're allowing people to live and, and uh, thrive and be healthy from a desert landscape that otherwise wouldn't be producing anything. And where would that water go if we didn't use it? Like I said before, it'd be going into the sea. So that's, that's human intervention. I think that it would be a derelict of duty if we allowed that water to flow past us into the salty ocean. I think that our creator would look down upon us if we were just just barely subsisting on bare roots or not having children so we couldn't live here at all and only living in where uh, food grew more naturally in, in more hospitable climates. And instead of using our intellect and and designing ways to make the desert flourish. I think our creator would look at us and say, hey, I gave you a talent and you buried it. Exactly. You and know, you didn't use it. And therefore, you're a slothful servant. And what you were given is going to be taken away and given to somebody that actually did utilize. And of course, I'm referring back to the parable of the talents where one was given five, one was given two, and one was given one. And um, so we need to use our talents to do that. Now, a million acre feet comes into Yuma each year, but you know how much we put back into the Colorado River? We put back about three to 400,000 acre feet of water. So what we do is we, that, that's done in a couple different ways. We pump it out of the ground because the aquifers here in Yuma, they are actually filling up because we use so much irrigation water from the Colorado River that they fill up the aquifers so high that if you live in the valley in Yuma, you know you don't have a basement. 
Well, and, and what I hear is they're running pumps around the clock to maintain yes. that, right? Yes. Yeah. They're pumping water out of the ground because there's too much groundwater. And when that groundwater goes up to the surface, what happens is um, it makes it difficult, if not impossible, to grow crops because that groundwater is drowning out the roots of those crops. The, the water needs to siphon through the soil and um, pass by the roots, not be submerged um, entirely in the roots. Now, I'm not a farmer, I'm not an agriculturist, but I, the, the basic concept is when the water table is too high and you, you don't have surface water there, um, the plants can't grow because the dirt is dry, but the surface water, when you apply it, can't soak in because the water table is too high and then the plants can't grow. So what we need to do is we need to keep the water tables at a constant level at a, and um, we need to do that by pumping water out. So water is pumped out into the river. When water comes in and we use it, we send it down river, and there's a quality that we must maintain for Mexico because Mexico is going to continue using that water again for its agriculture purposes. So we want to maintain a good quality of water. And when it comes to Yuma, it leaves Yuma the same quality as when we brought it in. So really... We're not actually using, we are using a million acre feet, but we're not just consuming it and, and it's gone. It's being recycled, it's, it's replenishing the aquifers, and it's being sent downstream later on for, for the use for the um, people that live in Mexico. We have to take a break. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hansen, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking about the likelihood that there is a population bomb occurring in that there is going, we are uh, growing um, in our numbers as human beings so fast that the Earth's resources won't be able to keep up. And as a result, there's going to be famine and war and starvation. And this was something that was widely adopted back in the 60s. Um, one of the most popular books on the issue was The Population Bomb. That was the, the title of it. And it was um, written by Paul, Paul Ehrlich. He was a German scientist that was also a Stanford pr professor. And uh, his estimates were that uh, there was going to be mass famine and starvation by the 1970s, and hundreds of millions of people would starve to death, and wars would be created, and there would be social and economic unrest and collapse. And so what we needed to do was we needed to have government entities impose sterilization and contraception so we didn't overpopulate. Now, that was done in some countries, China notably. Uh, it was done in India as well. And um, there were hundreds of millions of humans that were affected, primarily infants, and mass infanticide that occurred as a result of that. And my belief is that the earth was created for us as humans to grow, develop, to practice good manners of stewardship, to develop and help the earth be more productive, develop technologies that would allow people to thrive, 
that would allow us to take care of the sick and and follow the example of, of Jesus, which is to care for the poor and those who were um, sick in general and didn't have the means to care for themselves. And in order to do that, we need to first be able to provide for ourselves and our families, and then we can go out and provide for others. Technology has allowed us a way to do that. And technology is widely fueled by energy that comes from fossil fuels. Now, there's a lot of different sources of energy. Um, there's nuclear energy, there's hydropower, there's, um, you know. coal, you know? Yeah, there's, there's natural gas, there's coal. There's all of the, the fundamental ones. And we see that there are some trade-offs when you use those energies. Um, there's the common consensus that by using fossil fuels, we're warming the climate. Now, okay, let's take that all into consideration and weigh out what are the biggest issues um, for mankind and for the world in general. Because if we're going to be good stewards of the world, that doesn't mean that we just strip mine it and deforest it and, and use all the resources immediately until they're all gone and there's nothing left for the next generation. Of course, that's a bad idea. And we've, we've gone through periods in, in our existence where we've done that and learned from our mistakes or are in the process of learning from them. And now we're reforesting at terrific rates. China is actually participating in reforestation because there's a lot of desertification that was occurring in, um, it was starting to encroach on Beijing, a lot of this desertification where those sands were blowing over. And so they, they started to reforest areas outside of Beijing to keep that sand from coming in. And they've created millions of acres of trees and forest that um, just through planting the, the trees that were there before and, uh, hiring their individual, the population there to do that. We can do the same thing here. We have done the same thing here. And um, a really neat statistic that is, is not talked about enough is that there is more vegetation on the earth, 30% more vegetation on the earth now than there was 40 years ago. And the prediction was that 40 years ago, back in the 1980s, that we would be in this mass starvation cycle and that we would be going to war because there wasn't enough food. And right now we can plant enough food in a fraction of the area of land because of fossil fuels, because of the fertilizers that are created from fossil fuels. We can make the land so much more productive and feed a, a much larger population of people than we could before. Not only that, but the water is cleaner. The air is cleaner. I think that very few people, especially if you're educated, would argue that our water here in the United States, the streams, the rivers, the waterways in general, are less clean now than they were in the 70s and 80s. That the air is less clean now than it was in the 70s and 80s. We had to go through that cycle where we were burning gas that had lead in it. It was called regular gas, right? right, right? Yeah. And that, that caused a lot of air pollution, which in turn caused a lot of water pollution and pollution, acid rain. Um, sulfur dioxide is what it caused, and so that was acid rain. And so there was a lot of negative um, impacts from that, but we learned, and it was a learning curve that we went through. We took the lead out of the gas, 
and now we use unleaded gas, which is kind of funny because regular gas is just unleaded. We just don't put lead in it anymore. Right. <laughs> so now we put ethanol in it. Well, what is ethanol? Uh, corn, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ethanol is alcohol produced by corn. And so we had this great idea back in the early 2000s that to get away from fossil fuels, we would create sustainable biofuels. And you'll remember back in those days, they had biodiesel. Oh, yeah. Like like French fry grease and stuff, right? That French fry grease, that was one thing too. But you had these biodiesel vehicles. Yeah. And you had flex fuel vehicles that they could they could run off of biofuel, which is essentially alcohol. And alcohol was created from corn. And so what they started to do was take a lot of land that was used for regular food production and rededicate it to growing corn, so monoculture. And the corn was used to create alcohol that was used to put into the gasoline and, and supplement the gasoline so we weren't so reliant on fossil fuels. Well, what happened as a result of that? We took out a lot of land for the purpose of producing food, and um, it was very inefficient in producing actual fuel for energy purposes to power your car. It, it, it corrodes the engine because the byproduct of burning alcohol is water. Right. And um, so when you, it's water and oxygen. And uh, when you do that, then um, the components of your engine begin to rust and it's terrible for boats. And so what you have to do is you have to replace your cars more often, which is going to require a lot more natural resources and mining and, and, you know, creating steel and so on and so forth. So, and it also allowed for uh, a lot more runoff from these fields that were being grown and, and really overused for this monoculture. We know that when you use a field for one crop only, that it depletes the soil of certain nutrients and then it becomes barren. And um, so you have to apply more and more um, artificial fertilizers. And those artificial fertilizers would run off into the streams and cause water pollution. A lot of nitrogen would go into the streams. And then what would happen is it would um, grow a lot of moss and um, algae, and so it cut out the sunlight for the fish, and so the fish would die off, and so it had a lot of adverse impacts. Now, was the concept good? I think so, and I remember in the 2000s, I thought, well, this is the wave of the future. I really wanted to invest in biofuels and get along, and, and when I was going to law school, I thought, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to be an attorney for a company that uh, creates biofuel. And now we've learned our lesson that that is actually not a good idea. It's a better idea to pull this sludgy black stuff out of the ground that we're not otherwise using and refine it to be a fuel that is way more efficient in providing energy. And the byproducts of it are plastic and silicone and all the things that we need for our modern way of life. And so, um, but we learn by experience that we can cultivate the land, we can actually produce more crops, we can produce more food on smaller plots of land if we do it wisely. How do we understand what is the wisest way to do it? Well, one thing you don't do is take a big group of uh, ingenuitive minds out of the pool of thinking and select individuals who have 
no experience in developing energy like politicians. Or, or these activists. I mean, apparently uh, what, an 18-year-old kid from the Netherlands is yeah. an expert on the climate. Yeah. So, yeah, Greta Thunberg, she's an expert on the climate, right? She's saying that we are robbing her of her childhood because the seas are going to be boiling from climate change. Um, and she sails over here to um, a climate conference in New York to prove how climate conscious she is by not using fossil fuels to do that. And um, not only is it, it terribly hypocritical because, of course, the boat that is created is um, created from uh, fiberglass, which right. requires, you know, uh, the byproducts of, of oil, petroleum. And um, also she had to fly an entire crew over instead of just flying herself over to take the boat back to the <laughs> Netherlands and so used 10 times more energy than would other be used just so she could virtue signal to the world that she loved the earth more than we did and she loved the next generation more than we do. What, of course, the solution is, is allow individuals the freedom of ingenuity. Let's think a little bit back you know, the United States was this great experiment of allowing the people to govern and allowing them to have freedom. One main thing with freedom is ownership, ownership of your ideas, ownership of land, ownership of your own destiny, where you go. So life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness goes along with owning property. You can't have life or liberty if you don't have the way to sustain life by owning property. And uh, so we... Many of us know that originally that um, the, the words that were penned by Thomas Jefferson were um, that life, liberty, and property were the fundamental inalienable rights that all men have. And not the, the reason that property was taken out of there is because we uh, are not entitled to property. We're simply um, given the right to own property and not just have a sovereign own the property that we are thieves of the property, not thieves, but thieves, meaning um, tenants on, on land that, that, that uh, monarch owns. And so when we own the property, we develop it and innovation comes about. What innovation? Ha have you noticed any change since uh, we've uh, implemented that uh, concept of liberty and individual ownership of property that this experiment uh, initiated 250 years ago? Exactly. Like how many people flee to this land of opportunity to develop their uh, obviously live a free life, but to develop their their ingenuity, to develop their technology. To, right. Yeah. You look at what is produced, what has been developed in the past 250 years since the general population has been given the freedom to think for themselves and to own their own concepts, to own their intellectual property, to own their actual physical property, and to develop it as they see fit. And then the best manners of development rise to the surface, and we get this great intervention. The worst way to develop new technologies and to determine how to efficiently manage what we have is to put all of that power and decision-making authority into a few hands, i.e. the government, right? And 
people that, number one, most for the most part, have never produced anything on their own. And it just limits the thought pool to something that's so insignificant that we can't get great ideas out there. So what I'm trying to get at is that this population bomb, number one, was more of a religion and, and not actual science. And I, and I can say that with certainty because the prophecy was in the late 70s and 80s, we would all be dying of starvation, and we are not. We are producing more food now than has ever been produced, and, and we have a, a surplus of food. Now, there is, um, of course, that problem of logistics, of getting the food to the right places, and there are certainly corrupt governments around the world. And the worst thing that we can do for these other countries is colonize them with our concepts of this new religion of climate and environmentalism and not allow these countries to grow as we did. Now, they don't have to go through the same learning curve that we did. They can certainly learn from the technologies that we've developed and then one-up it. And that's, that's what we hope for. Well, and, and ideally, you know, we're also doing a, a disservice to the world when we take markets like California and say, all right, you're not going to be able to sell a gas motor or engine, in, you know, in, in California anymore. So now we're, we're stifling innovation in a leading market that could very well develop something that could be used in a third world that, I don't know, could help. Absolutely. And we can go real deep into California as to how backwards its policies are, but um, we'll just take that for granted right now. But I'm talking about other countries, like countries in Africa, the Sudan, um, Zimbabwe, countries in South America, where we provide aid, and um, they become reliant on U.S. aid to the extent that um, we're actually enabling the poverty to continue because we're not allowing them to create and innovate on their own and use their own resources, which oftentimes are more plentiful than the natural resources that we have here at home, to provide for their own um, their own people, for their own society, and develop technologies that we don't even we haven't even thought of before, because they can get a Stanford or a Harvard level education with regard to technology, and they can get that off of their cell phone and implement it in ways that bring forth new ideas and concepts that can enhance the environment, enhance food production, and allow um, the environment and animal life to flourish. If you, if you keep them in poverty, they're going to continue burning dung, wood, coal, um, not coal so much, but um, charcoal. Um, for their primary fuel source. And when they're doing that, it's labor-intensive. It's very inefficient to cook food and heat a house with wood and and coal and whatnot. Um, And it doesn't allow them to get out and get an education and develop their industry the way we've been able to do it and to continue to um, advance that industry so the environment itself becomes cleaner. In Yuma, we, we live in a very clean environment. The water downstream is just as clean as the water upstream, and that is because of technology. We've got to take a break. This is Life, Death, and the Law. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. 
You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. This is Sean Garner. I'm an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. We do estate planning. So what we do is we help individuals um, understand what assets they have, by going through and identifying each of their accounts, where they own property, what cars they own, help them consolidate all of the documentation for their assets into a binder that have tabs and they can easily locate those assets and manage them. And just that alone helps them become more financially efficient because a lot of times we get so caught up in the day-to-day rush of life that we don't even understand what resources we have out there. And so when we're spending money, um, we're, we're not doing it as wisely and efficiently as we could. So that, that helps. Number two is you're creating a roadmap or what I like to refer to as a treasure map for your kids when you pass away that they can find all of the um, wealth that you've acquired as an individual. And so it doesn't get left to the state or some other entity or individual that you didn't intend it to go to. We also create trusts that allow you to designate exactly who you want to be in control of those assets when you pass away. So it's not the court, it's not the state deciding how it's going to be managed and who it goes to. It's you because it's held in a living trust that will continue to live beyond you. So your wishes become immortalized in the trust and continue to carry out um, what your legacy was that you developed during life. So that's what I do, and that's where my expertise lies. So why do I talk so much about the government and um, impositions about these climate policies? The reason is because I believe that when people are allowed to own property, to develop their own ideas, to own their ideas, and to not have the religion of, I would say, the minority, but but that has the, the popular seat in government right now to impose regulations on us that take away our ability to continue to create and innovate um, based on scare tactics. For example, we've we've had so many in the past three years. We had COVID. Uh, I'm a firm believer, and you can make up your own mind on this issue, that the cure was far worse than the disease, that if we had left doctors alone to do what doctors do well, and that is to identify the best treatment for an individual patient, we would have got through COVID with far less deaths, and the deaths that did occur could have occurred with much more dignity, meaning the individuals could be surrounded by their family. The worst fear that most people have is dying alone. And how many people died alone because our government imposed these draconian rules through the CDC that became some sort of, you know, emperor on what was all good and right. And we couldn't be with our loved ones when they were going through this illness and and ultimately death. When doctors were under threat of being canceled if they didn't follow government-regimented protocols for health. Since when does the government know what's best for our health? Individual doctors go to school to learn, and they all go to different schools, and they all develop a little bit different practices. And we know that when you get a diagnosis that's severe, you want to get a second opinion. And that second opinion generally doesn't come from a government official. Right. And I remember having to kind of find a doctor that 
viewed things as I viewed, you know, that wasn't really pushing the vaccine. Right. You know, I so, found a different doctor during that time because of that. And, and the thing is, we, we were told so many lies that we know are lies that we couldn't even talk about them being lies. And the, and the number one lie was that the vaccine would cure everything, that you had to get the vaccine. And if you talked anything negative about the vaccine, you'd be canceled. Do you love your grandmother? You need to get the vaccine. You're going to kill your grandmother. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and people, even like Howard Stern, who, you know, he was somebody that I don't agree with the content of what he says, but he was a big advocate for free speech because he was benefiting from it and became a millionaire because of it. But he was saying, you know, freedom is second tier to the government's impositions of, of policies that we need to do to keep the, the general population healthy. Now, of course, he said it in a lot more coarse language, but um, I thought, wow, what a hypocrite. Somebody who's made a living off of freedom of speech, of saying vulgar things that offend most of the people, but are defend he's defended or um, protected by the First Amendment, and yet he wants to take away the rest of our freedom because he himself has become paralyzed with fear of this the covid virus and so covid was one obviously there there was the vaccine portion of it there was the origins of it we were lied to about right where it came from we all know that it is very unlikely that it, it came from some bat that uh, got that got killed and sold in a fish market that it was probably something that was developed in a in a lab in wuhan with um, government funding that came partly from the United States as well. Um, there was a letter that I read that it was just put out um, in early November, and it was from the um, Department of Reclamation. Okay. And it, it's talking about the drought that we are in right now and uh, that we have been in since the year 2000 and that we have to continue to significantly impose restrictions on water use. And so part of that is they're going to use the, um, the Biden Build Back Better infrastructure money that uh, was passed back in the COVID hysteria time of, I think, 2022 and maybe 2021. In either way, um, that they're going to use that money to pay farmers not to use their land, so to fallow their land, which means to, to not grow the crops that they would typically grow on that land. And um, this letter says the drought is continuing to occur, so we have to continue to impose these restrictions. Well, here's, here's the facts. Um, and in the letter, it says that um, the average inflow to our reservoirs, Lake Powell, Lake Mead, whatnot, uh, that are upstream, um, is between five and six million acre-feet of water. In reality, in 2023, 14 million acre-feet of water has come down already into those reservoirs and is still coming down. I mean, it, it, it's starting to taper off because now we're getting into winter again and the snowpack is starting to build up and so the the inflows are, are dwindling. But there was... 14 million acre-feet as of the date of that letter. Okay. And um, which means that's an absolute lie because the average over the course of 100 years when it's averaged out, it was about between 8 and 9. 
that's an average year. That's no drought. That's what we've allocated to the lower basin states. That's Arizona, California, a little bit to New Mexico, a tiny bit to Nevada, and then um, a bit to Mexico. That's eight to nine million acre feet of water that's allocated. Well, we had 14 million acre feet come in to the lower basin reservoirs, and yet that letter went out that was completely inaccurate going to, and Kamala Harris, is she oversees um, the Department of the Interior, which oversees the Bureau of Reclamation, and they're saying we need to have continue with those water restrictions, and so I'm sitting here in um, my law office right now, surrounded by about 30 acres of field that used to produce alfalfa, that used to produce um, all sorts of agriculture. And there are no more farmers working there. There's no more sheep that are grazing on That's it, right? Yeah. right? There, there is no more production of that field because the federal government is paying that landowner to leave it dirt, just to leave it totally uncultivated. So, and, and that landowner could lease it to a, a farmer to, to produce, but instead they're taking the money from the government. That's right. And I know the farmer personally who leased the land, who employed dozens of people to work, and those people spent their money at restaurants, they paid their rent with it, they paid their grocery bills for it, and now they're, giving, they're getting government subsidies because they're out of a job and they're getting unemployment because they can't go to work and actually produce. And so if we're concerned about a food shortage, why are we paying people? People not to produce. That the only reason is that the government likes power. The government's purpose is to use and wield power, or I would say politicians. Their main focus is to obtain and wield power. And I know that's not all politicians, but for by and large, that's the bureaucrats out there. And the people that are over, the, the, the whole Bureau of Reclamation, that is an administrative body. It's a bureaucratic body. It's not an elected um, government entity. And so we have no authority or input on what the Bureau of Reclamation does or the Department of the Interior. These are administrative bodies that they're non-elected. They're typically or technically non-constitutional government entities. Now, I talked about the 14 million acre feet that's coming in to the lower basin reservoirs. So the allocation was restricted down to 7 million acre feet instead of nine. So the states had to reduce the usage of water that they were going to be using to, uh, you know, produce all of the things that are done. I mean, we're talking anything from um, grapes to almonds to lettuce to dozens and dozens of um, varieties of food here in the valley, and that includes California as well as Arizona. But uh, we're, we're being paid not to produce that, or we're simply just being restricted and the farmers are hurting in general. Um, what they're allowing to go through the reservoirs, and this is the point that I want to end on, is because there's so much water that came in so quickly that instead of 7 million acre feet was allocated to be released in um, the water year 2023, and now it's going to be 9 million. Well, the allocation is set for 7 million, right? So the farmers are only allowed to use 7 million. So what happens with that other 2 million acre feet of water? Mexico? Or 
California? Or? No, it, it, it's not for any of the states. So it, it may be Mexico because Mexico gets to use at least 1.5 million acre feet and any excess that is released downstream to it. Yeah, you're right. If, if the allocations haven't been updated, then where where's it going? There is no, exactly. There's no update to the allocations and yet 2 million more acre feet is being released. 2 million acre, more acre feet. That is, it's unbelievable the amount of waste that is being allowed to flow right past these fields that are laying fallow without being grown, without producing um, a job and a career for individuals and food for our nation. And that is your government working for you. So let's, if nothing else, agree that the government shouldn't be in the business of imposing what is typically and, and more correctly interpreted as a religion, this climatology religion, I think it's right up there with Scientology. It's BS. And we need to take the power back in our own hands and allow people to believe what they want, but exercise our own freedom in utilizing the land the way that it was intended for, for our own innovation, cultivation, and good stewardship so we can become better people and produce more and better things for both the land and um, our country and the world in general. That's all the time that we have today. This is Life, Death, and Life. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.